This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This is the third in our series, which is uh, devoted to Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians. And it's called Rooted in Jesus. And today's uh, sermon is in Rooted in the Cross. It's the third in the, series, in the series. And last week's reading ended with Paul described himself as a minister of the gospel. He sort of left us hanging there. He said, I'm a minister of the gospel. And so what today's reading is, is talking about what does that mean to be a minister of the gospel? Now, he starts out in the first verse, which is going to be the main thing we talk about today. It's an extremely powerful verse, verse 24. He talks about the challenges he faces in his own gospel ministry. How does, how does he face the challenges of his ministry? Then he tells us about the nature of gospel ministry. What really is gospel ministry? And the first thing he tells us is he says the task of gospel ministry is to make the Word of God fully known to everyone. If you look in your text, you'll see the word everyone is repeated three times. Why? There was a group of people at that time. They didn't call themselves. We now call them Gnostics looking back. But they believed, well, you know, God is so complicated, he's way behind regular, below, he's too high for regular people. So there's some stuff you could teach regular people, but the real important things about God are reserved for a special class of really smart people, the Gnostics, the people who knew. And he says, no, 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 we, he says, our job is to preach the, uh, is to preach the, make the word of God fully known to everyone. There's only one gospel. It's the same gospel for everyone, the fullness of the gospel. So then he says, what is the heart of that? He says it's a mystery. And a mystery means something that was there, we just didn't see it before. It's like it's hidden behind a veil. And we pull it back, what do we see? And he says, you know what the mystery is? Christ in us, the hope of glory. And what does that mean? Well, we know that Jews had the wonderful belief, of course, that we share in the resurrection, right? The Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. But why should they believe that? And in a way, they would look at Scripture. But fundamentally, we had to say, I hope I interpreted that right. I mean, I'm, I'm going for broke on this. But he's saying we don't have to trust anyone on this in the sense that we have the Lord Jesus actually dwelling on us, the presence of His Holy Spirit. He calls it the guarantee. You know, sometimes it's called the down payment of our salvation. We know our resurrection will happen because we're already living the resurrection. The same Lord Jesus is in us now in His Spirit. So he says that, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the down payment on what is to come. Now, this, why I want to focus on the first verse today, you know, Paul's experience in, the, in ministry, which is a tough experience, is we ourselves as Christians, any of us, even if we're not in professional ministry, all of us as Christians are in ministry. We're sharing the gospel. We're living the gospel. And that's bring, that brings opposition. But actually today it's bringing more and more pushback. It's getting harder and harder to witness to the faith in the world we live in. And so Paul's going to give us advice here that could be very important to us as Christians. How do we live out our witness to the gospel? Now, let's start up. We have a lot to cover here, so let's start up with a warm-up exercise. Okay, we're going to have a warm-up exercise here. Remember, you'd have those tests that would say which of the item doesn't go with the others? Okay, let's see a four-wake. First item is going to be cup, plate, lamp. 
Lamp. Okay. We can wake up. How about Cubs, Bears, White Sox? Bears. Yes, there's a lot of exegesis we can put in that. Okay. How about, how about Wisconsin, Atlanta, New Orleans? Wisconsin. All right. Do you know that the Apostle Paul did one of these? No, really, he did. It's in today's reading in verse 24. He did the same thing. He put three words together. He put together rejoicing, suffering, and afflictions. Which one of those doesn't go with the others? <laughs> Clueless, right? Well, most of this is a trick question. I would have thought, I've got to tell you, honestly, I thought it was rejoicing. But actually, Paul tells us they all go together. There's no right answer for this. It's a trick question. So I don't get it. How is that possible? That's the main thing we're going to look at. How is it possible to rejoice in sufferings and afflictions? Those don't go together. So how, what can that mean? It must mean something. It's in the Word of God. What can that mean? Well, first of all, I've got to tell you, when people talk about suffering, you have to, what do they know about suffering? Uh, you know, there's suffering and there's suffering. Right, you know, uh, you know that, uh, you know that tooth filling can be a little rugged, but it's not like a root canal. Come on, already, it's not a root canal. And failing a quiz can be tough, but it's not like losing your job. And believe me, trust it as an old guy. What we do as old people to get together is compare our sufferings. I mean, it's funny. You call that a tumor? I mean, that kind of thing. <laughs> so we sort of compare our sufferings. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, how serious? Before Paul's going to give me lessons on suffering, how serious were his sufferings? Okay. Well, Paul actually gives us sort of an inventory. You know, some people basically said he hadn't, you know, he, uh, you know, he didn't know what he's talking about. So in 2 Corinthians, he tells us some of the things he went through. Talk about physical suffering. He had been through multiple imprisonments. And in the ancient world, imprisonment now is not a fun thing, but the ancient world was really hideous because good Romans aren't going to pay for, for criminals to, to feed them or something like that. That's why you need to visit people in prison. Charity and things had to bring them food. That's not the state's problem. That's your problem. <laughs> you know, so people had to really make sure to go and take care of people when they are in prison. Okay, it wasn't a fun place to be. He said he had, his is true, countless beatings, often near death. Five times, you know, the highest physical punishment, corporal punishment you could receive under Jewish law was the 39 lashes. He said, I got him three times. And he said, you know, the Romans have their highest punishment, not, except for, uh, you know, for actual capital punishment, was being beaten with robs. He said, I've been through that three times. Okay, and he says, I was stoned once, and I was left for dead. Okay, three times I was shipwrecked, and one time I was in the water for 24 hours out in the ocean, the water, for 24 hours. He said, I can't tell you, but I've been hungry and thirsty and sleepless nights. I've been in cold and exposure. You know, I'm a, you know I, can, I can whine with the best, but I think Paul has a case here. Paul really knew suffering, so this man knows what he's talking about. I want to make clear here, Paul knows real suffering. This is not casual whining. This is real suffering. But you say, well, that's all physical, you know, that's really tough. But, you know, psychological shuffling can really, really be hard. So Paul is no stranger to that. He goes on and he says, you know, 
First of all, he had been traveling most of his career, and he said, that's really tough. He said, constant danger. You mentioned, for example, river crossings. This was before our Army Corps of Engineers. Rivers were really dangerous to cross because they changed a lot. You know, suddenly, in rainy seasons, they overflowed. They became dangerous with uh, undercurrents and the like. A lot of people died crossing rivers. So he said, you know, I have the dangers from rivers. And he said, bandits, they didn't have organized police forces. That's why people went with armed guards. So being out on the open road and camping and things was a pretty scary prospect. But he says, you know, the one thing everybody can agree on, they don't like me. He said, I have opposition for my own people. Paul loved He's one of the chosen people. He loved his people. He says in Romans, I would rather go to hell myself if it would save Israel. He said, I love my people. And he says, yet I'm rejected constantly. Everywhere I go, I'm rejected by, by most of my own people. And he said, a lot of Gentiles don't have any use for me either. Remember at Ephesus, when they start having the riot and things, they talk about great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay. And he said, even in the church I have problems. There are people who are sneaking in, trying to, with false doctrines, or people who just want to take over. You know, like in 2 Corinthians, some other people came and trying to force him out. You're a good church planner. Why don't you go somewhere else? <laughs> and we, the, the big boys are here now to, to take care of the church. So he said this, and he said the worst thing in some ways is daily anxiety. I love all these people, all these churches, and I'm constantly worried about them. I'm praying for them. I'm worrying about them. So I've got to tell you, I think that Paul really has a good case that when he talks about suffering, he's talking about something he actually knows, not theoretical suffering. And here's what amazes me. You know, I consider it pretty good if I can put up with suffering. You know, I think it's pretty good if I endure suffering and don't, don't complain. I think that's pretty good. But Paul embraces suffering. He said, I rejoice in my sufferings. Whoa, that is a place, that's a different place. You know, one thing saying putting up without whining and things, it's another thing, embracing your suffering. Whoa, Paul, that's, uh, that's a lot. So why could that be? Well, first of all, let's look Paul is reliving, first of all, what about these sufferings? He's reliving the experience of Jesus. It's sort of ironic because Paul is proclaiming good news. The gospel means this is great news, good news. It's like finding out you won the lottery, except it's better. The prize is better. It's really good news. Now, Jesus had the same situation. He came to bring good news. Matter of fact, one of the gospels, you know, John's message was repent and believe the good news. And Jesus, when he comes after John, says, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is at hand. Okay, so it's good news. Remember, on Christmas, what do the angels say? They say, you know, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Well, you know, the trouble is we all know from experience you don't want to be the bearer of bad news, like at the office or something. You don't want to be the person to bring the bad news. People hate the messenger. Okay, so you want to be bringing the good news. You think this has got to be the sweet job, bringing good news. But what Jesus and Paul both got was rejection. They brought great news, and for the most part, they were rejected. Why would people reject good news? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. He's saying it's good news, but it's inconvenient. You know, it requires change, and people don't like change. You sort of wonder with that man who had been around 38 years at the Pool of Siloam, and Jesus has to go and saying, now, let's get this straight. Are you sure you want to be healed? There's sort of a comfort that settles in with the predictable. 
Do you want to be healed? So there's sort of a resistance to change. So he brings good news. A lot of people rejected it and opposed it. Okay, but here's the beautiful thing with both Jesus and Paul following his example. God, you know, the enemy is famous for bringing evil out of good. He takes beautiful good things and turns them to evil. It's his genius, his sick genius. But God does exactly the opposite. Because think about it. You know, the opposition to Jesus led to his suffering and death on the cross, but that's what brought salvation to the whole world. And with Paul, you know, he was rejected by many of his own people, but he said, ironically, it was their rejection that got the gospel to the whole world, to the Gentiles. So you meant it for evil, as Paul Joseph said, but God meant it for good. Now, there is no separating the cross from the crown. If I wanted to give you a quick um, a tutorial on heresies, it normally comes down some way, how can we have the good stuff and not have the hard stuff? How can we separate the crown from the cross? Everything else is commentary. Okay, now, Jesus says for the first time today in today's gospel, he announces that he's going to have to suffer and die. And only then, suffering and death comes first, then resurrection. He tells his apostles this. What's the reaction of Peter? It's a lot of our rejection. He, he's appalled. He rebels against the notion that, that anything good can come out of suffering. Oh, God would never let that happen. A good God would never let suffering happen. He's saying, Jesus, you must be having a bad day. He pulls him aside to give him a look, to rebuke him, to say, come on, come on. This is a real downer. It's bringing everybody down. Okay, so he brings him aside to say, that's never going to happen. God will take care of you. And he said, what does he say? He said, good point, Peter. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. Anything that tries to tell us that we can get to the crown without the cross is a lie. It's the voice of the enemy. It's the voice Adam and Eve listened to. You know, he says, no, there is no way to one with the other. The path to Easter Sunday always passes through Good Friday. It had to pass through Good Friday. Anything else uh, misses the whole point. That is to say that I have that image there. Our hope of resurrection is rooted in the cross. You can't separate the two. That's where it comes from. It's rooted in the cross. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, that's good for Jesus. I understand why Jesus had to bear the cross. I get that. I went to Sunday school. But why do I have to bear the cross? Okay. So, we might say this is something just unique to Jesus. You know, I think a lot of us, when we hear the story of Jesus, say this is something to admire instead of imitate. You go, Jesus. I mean, we just want to say, uh, you know, that's really great. Wow, I'll sit back here and admire it. So we have to think that somehow what God is asking us is to admire. We certainly admire. Lord knows what Jesus did. But notice what happens in today's gospel. You know, Peter had called him aside so he didn't embarrass anybody. He said, Lord, you know, this is, this is a doctor. I wonder what's doing that. The enemy doesn't like the message. Okay, okay. <laughs> he says, this is a downer. So he's alone with Peter. He's alone, you know, Peter. But when he's going to say something, Jesus said for you, he said he called back not only all the disciples, he called back everybody in the crowd. He said, I want everybody to hear this. No one misses what I'm going to say now. That's pretty big. So what does he have to say to all of us? He said, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he's saying, this message is for anybody 
at the time of Jesus, in every time, even our own, the answer is the old, Jesus, we admire Jesus, but he says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone be my disciple, he, has to t he himself has to take up the cross and follow me. Which brings a good question. We would say, if Jesus has already done it all, if Jesus has paid it all, why do I have to do anything? Why do I have to carry a cross? No, why isn't enough? Why can't I just admire? Why do I have to carry a cross? That's a good question, because he certainly paid it all. Well, we knew Jesus had to suffer and die. Our redemption was at the price of his blood, the last drop of his blood for our redemption. And what he did, he did once and for all. It is finished. It's complete. Nothing is lacking. Okay, we're told in Hebrews, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. However, Christ's work of redemption on the cross is completed, but the work of salvation is not. What's the difference? Well, think of it this way. Is it's like, you know, uh, growing a crop, okay? And if the crop is there, it's been a perfect harvest. But, you know, we have to get that to the people who are going to eat it. We don't want it. It can't just rot in the field. It has to go out. It won't do anyone any good. Unless the, the, the part of it is we have to develop. It's like developing a brand new medicine. Like, you know, sadly, in a lot of the world, we have diseases that don't have to exist at all. They're fully cured long ago, like leprosy. There should be no one on earth who has leprosy. We have drugs that completely treat it. And yet, somehow, we have the drug, but we can't get it to everybody. There are still people who are missing it somehow. So the idea is Christ has done everything, but we still have to get the fr that fruit out to everyone. Christ has not finished the work of salvation. He's finished the work of redemption, but not the work of bringing everyone into the fullness of that life. So that's what is still lacking when Paul talks about what's lacking, you know. And so what he's saying here, for example, in jo he explains it in Romans. Uh, you know, he's saying, quotes the prophet Joes as everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he says, well, how will they call on him if they, don't, if they haven't believed? And how will they believe in him if they haven't heard? And how will they hear if somebody preaches, doesn't preach it to them? And how will they have it preached if no one's sent? So he's saying the work, yes, Jesus did it all, but Jesus continues his work. That's an important, he continues his work. Because we're his body, the church, he's still at work. You know, he's continued his work. Jesus, in his incarnation, has finished work. He's continuing that work of getting the fruits of redemption to the whole world. That's the work. And how does he do that? He does it by us and with us and in us. So let's explain by us. Because remember, we, the church is his body. And by the way, this isn't a metaphor. Sometimes we think, no, when Paul is on the Damascus Road, still Saul, what does Jesus say to him? Paul, why are you persecuting me? He might say, Jesus, you're up in heaven. You're at the place. No, no. If you're, anyway, he says, whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. This is not a metaphor. You know, Christ, we are the members of the body of Christ. We are Christ at work now in the world. So how does he use us to fill this? He says it by, by him, by us, with us, and in us. By us, the Great Commission. You, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What about with? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How about in? Whoever receives you, receives me. 
So Christ, until the end of the world, continues his work of salvation in his body, the church. Christ is still at work. And because we suffer in this, those are Christ's afflictions. I'm completing, you know, in my body, you know, Christ's afflictions for his body, the church. You know, Christ continues to be afflicted in our afflictions. I'm finishing that work. Christ is finishing the work, and I'm cooperating with that. Now, we can have, let me do a whining thing here for you. I can so do whining. Okay. Years of practice. Okay. You can be good. You just have to work at it. Okay. How, why does the gospel have to avoid suffering? Well, how come, how come, you know, why, I understand sharing the gospel. Why does it have to involve suffering? Why? And he tells us why. Jesus says, he said, you know, the world hated him, will hate us for the same reason it hated him. It's inevitable. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world loves you as it loves its own. But you're not of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But why? Well, James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's what happens. The faith, the good news of Jesus Christ, is an existential threat to the enemy. Light and darkness cannot share anything. Light drives out darkness. They can't live together. There is no coexisting of light and darkness. And therefore, darkness immediately leaves. When somebody's going to pull that light switch, it realizes, if I don't stop something, I'm gone. So expect there to be resistance. Light and darkness have nothing in common. And so it's, whoa, okay. I will use these powers only for good. Okay. Okay. Thus, we should expect that we're going to, that, that we are going to, anyone who is witnessing to the gospel, I don't just mean just people who are proclaiming the gospel publicly, any of us who are Christians who are witnessing to the gospel have to expect opposition. But the gospel is always countercultural. You know, some people have the idea, younger people, I think it's not a critique, but you know, they think, you know, the older people of my generation lived through the 50s and the 60s and things, and when they're the Christian age, and say, well, that must have been different, saying, no, the gospel was just as countercultural then as it is now. It was just countercultural differently. <laughs> the gospel never fits in complete with any society. It always pinches or it's not the gospel. So it says all, look at what it says in Timothy. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say just preaching. All who desire to live a godly life, it's the very fact that we live dif differently will offend people. They will find that offensive. And notice, I believe the Scriptures mean what they say. I'm pretty conservative about Scripture. It says all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And I love 1 Peter. 1 Peter is talking about people who just been baptized and things or are starting to face some opposition. And he said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter said, I always told you this will be the reaction. You know, it's a, so what happens, for example, when something, when a virus comes to the body, your body immediately reacts, right, to, to stop it. Well, it looks upon us like a virus from its point of view. Okay, so let's get to the good part. Where does the joy come from? We know that the cross, the crown is at the end of the cross. How can we actually rejoice in that? Well, the first thing is normally, why do we hate suffering? And the big reason is that suffering is a frustration of things. It, doesn't, it does no good. It wrecks everything. It's a tragedy. God forbid a child with cancer is a tragedy. We look at the life that could have been, and we, we just weep. 
you know, this does nothing, it does no good. So we normally think suffering is bad, it, it frustrates things. But Paul says that's not true with suffering for the gospel. Suffering for the gospel, he says, I am, I'm, filled up, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. I'm actually working with Jesus as he finishes the work of salvation, as he brings the fruits of redemption to the whole world. This is going somewhere. This means something. And another thing, because his sufferings are part of the body of Christ, it means Christ suffers with him. That's what Christ says. He's finishing his afflictions, Christ's afflictions in his body, the church. So we don't suffer alone. When we suffer, Christ, we are not alone. Christ is suffering with us. That makes all the difference. One of the hardest things about suffering is this terrible feeling you're alone. It's really tough, especially with really bad things, like a really bad diagnosis. You have this whole horrible feeling. Is An hour ago, I had a life like everybody else. And now I don't. Just an hour ago, I feel so alone because I didn't have a clue on the other side. And now I know that nobody else does either. I, you know, I feel so alone. We never have to feel that way because our sufferings are Christ's sufferings, and He knows He's with us. Okay, so we... Now, another thing is, how did Jesus was also... He was truly God, but He was truly a man. As a human being, how did Jesus do it? I mean, that's a pretty nasty death. He said, not just like, like a death on a cross is really awful. The Romans were sort of experts at making things miserable. I mean, they had Colosseum and things. This is the worst they had in their, in their panoply was the cross. Okay, so how did he do that? And the epistle of the Hebrew tells us something. Remember how we said a moment ago, Jesus said, I have to suffer and die, but then I'll rise. It says in the Hebrews, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It says as a human being, Jesus only knew that in all those sufferings, there's something beyond this. The resurrection lays on the other side. That was the, for the joy that was set before him. That's why he could do it. And we have the same joy because we have the same hope, that living hope, and we even have the down payment of that in Christ living in us. We know there's something good on the other side. Right. We have a living hope. So our conclusion, it seems bad news at first, suffering awaits anyone who is a faithful witness to the God. Just trying to live a gospel life will bring opposition. You're in excellent company. It's a sort of a good sign you're on the right track. But our sufferings are profoundly suffering, different from the world's suffering. Our suffering has meaning. Christ is using our suffering to complete His work of salvation. He's completed the work of redemption. Now He's using us to bring those fruits to the whole world. We're joining with Christ in the very work of Christ. And also, we have the Christ within us. We know that hope. We have the living hope within us. Also, the joy in our affliction, I've got to tell you, is the best single witness we have for the gospel. The gospel is good news. And, you know, I could read up on this. I, you know, I could read up on bodybuilding and equipment and the like. But I think I'd be a bad spokesperson because no matter how much I really believed in these things, you would say, looking at me, I don't think he really believes in it. <laughs> so what happens is we often talk about, oh, how good the gospel is, but we sound, feel miserable. We describe the gospel like one more burden in a burdened life. You got family, you got job, and now you have church, like another burden in a burden life. We don't talk about it like it's good news. It's the joy that converts people. It's the joy people want. We have a lot of records in the ancient world. It's hard to believe that we didn't have the records of people who are Christians are being tortured, converted. 
Because here's what they thought. You see, in the Roman way, you could change your mind till the very end. Because they love to have people get them to change their mind. So they say, even now, as we start torturing you, anytime you say, I'll curse Jesus, you're out. We'll, we'll stop right now. We'll get you, get your doctor to try to help out. Uh, we'll even give you a, um, a little uh, payment and things to help you along the way. You can be a friend of Caesar. You don't have to be an enemy. So they knew at any moment they could get out of this. And people say, wait a second, they must really believe it if they're happy. Not just going through, they were often singing hymns and things. My God, it's true. This is not some, some wishful thinking. They really believe it. And I want that. That's real then. When they see us suffer differently, so when we go back and say the world's being so mean to us, it's so awful, you know, this kind of thing, is when we say, I'm happy to be where God's put me. You know, I don't care what happens. I'm just going to witness Christ. It's our attitude that will convince people. Just being resentful like everybody else, circling the wagon and say the world's being mean to us doesn't persuade anybody. So it's our joy in our sufferings that people say, wow, this is different. This cannot be faked. By the way, I'm running a little bit. I have to say this. One of my favorite stories, again, I'm really strict about the, about the Scriptures. I believe they mean what they say. Two of the, uh, three of the Gospels tell, all four Gospels tell us that there were two thieves next to Jesus. One of the Gospels, the other three of the Gospels tell us that both thieves were making fun of Jesus, were, were insulting him. One Gospel alone tells us, you know, tells us that, about the good thief. Now, people who aren't really don't believe the Scriptures in the same way would say, well, you know, somebody got it wrong or there's some other story, some other tradition. Okay. I don't think that's true. Here's what I think happened. I think when they got nailed on that cross is that they were mocking Jesus. Say, yeah, you know, you're the holy guy. A lot of good it did you. you know, they're doing this kind of thing. But when Jesus didn't react like everybody reacts when they're suffering and hurt, when He didn't react that way, when He reacted with love and peace, Somebody was converted saying, whoa, this is real. This is real. I mean, he's on a cross with us. How could he do that? That's why he says, Lord, just remember me when you enter your kingdom. So our witness of joy is the greatest witness to the gospel. So we'll say, this day let us pray for the grace to not just endure, put up with our cross, to embrace our cross, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Not with sadness, like the rich young man who you know, sort of went away sadly, but for the joy that is set before us, rejoicing in the presence that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And let's always remember that our hope of the crown is rooted in the cross. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, Check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.